Part Two of Chapter Twenty Five of The Golden Calf by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My seed was youth, my crop was endless care. They walked back at a brisk pace by common and park, not loitering to look at anything, though the glades and hills and hollows were lovely in that dim half-light which is the darkness of summer. The moon hung like a silver lamp in mid-heaven, and all the multitude of stars were shining around and above her, while far away in unfathomable space shone the mysterious light which started on its earthway journey in the years that are gone forever. Lady Palliser was not calmly slumbering in front of the tea-table in the mellow light of a duplex lamp after her wont. She was standing at the open window, watching for Ida's return. "'Oh, my dear, I have been so frightened,' she exclaimed, as Ida and Vernon appeared. "'About what, dear mamma? "'About Brian. He has been going on so. "'Rogers came to tell me, and I went up to the corridor, "'and asked him to unlock his door and let me in, but he wouldn't. "'Perhaps it was providential that he didn't unlock the door, "'for he might have killed me.' "'Oh, mamma, what nonsense!' exclaimed Ida. She hurried Vernon off to bed before his mother could say another word, and then went back to the widow, who was walking about the drawing-room in much perturbation. "'Now, tell me everything,' said Ida. "'I do not want Vernon to be frightened.' "'No, indeed, poor pet. But, oh, Ida, if he should try to kill Vernon!' "'Dear mother, he has no idea of killing anyone.' "'What can have put such dreadful notions in your head?' "'The way he went on, Ida. "'I stopped outside his door ever so long, listening to him. "'He walked up and down like a madman, "'throwing things about, talking and muttering to himself all the time. "'I think he was packing his portmanteau. "'There is nothing so dreadful in that, nothing to alarm you. "'Oh, Ida, when a person is once out of their mind, "'there is no knowing what they may do. Ida did all in her power to soothe and reassure the frightened little woman, and having done this, she went straight to her husband's room. She knocked two or three times without receiving any answer. Then came a sullen refusal. I don't want to be worried by anyone. You can go to your own room and leave me alone. But upon her assuming a tone of authority, he opened the door, grumbling all the while. The room was in frightful confusion. A couple of portmanteaus lay open on the floor. Books, papers, clothes were scattered in every direction. There was nothing packed. Brian was in shirt-sleeves and slippers, and had been smoking furiously, for the room was full of tobacco. "'Why don't you open your windows, Brian?' said his wife. "'The atmosphere is horrible.' She went over to one of the windows, and flung open the sash. "'That's a comfortable thing to do,' he said coming over to her, to open my window on a snowy night. Snowy, Brian, why, it's summer, a lovely night. Summer? Nonsense. Don't you see the snow? Why, it's falling thickly. Look at the flakes, like feathers. Look, look! He pointed out of the window into the clear moonlit air, and tried to catch imaginary snowflakes with his long, nervous fingers. Brian? You must know that it is summer-time, Ida said firmly. 
look at the woods those deep masses of shadow from the oaks and beeches in all the beauty of their summer foliage yes it's odd isn't it midsummer and a snowstorm what have you been doing with all those things packing i must go to london early tomorrow i have an appointment with the architect what architect the man who is to plan the alterations for this house i shall make great alterations you know now that the place is yours i am going to build an underground riding school like that at welbeck the place mine what are you dreaming of of course it's yours now vernon is dead you were to inherit everything at his death you could not have forgotten that vernon dead why brian he is snug and safe in his room a little way off i have seen him within this half hour you are a fool he said he died nearly three months ago you are the sole owner of this place and i am going to make it the finest mansion in the county he rambled on talking rapidly wildly of all the improvements and alterations he intended making with an assumption of a business-like air amidst all this lunacy which made his distracted state so much more painful to contemplate he talked of builders specifications estimates and quantities was full of self-importance described picture galleries music rooms high art decorations which would have cost a hundred thousand pounds and all with absolute belief in his own power to realize these splendid visions yet every now and then in the very rush of his projects there came a sudden cloud of fear his jaw fell he looked apprehensively behind him became darkly brooding muttered something about that hideous charge hanging over him a conspiracy hatched by men who should have been his friends the probability of a great trial in westminster hall and then he ran on again about builders and architects whistler burne jones and the marvellous mansion he was going to erect on the site of this present wimperfield he rambled on with this horrible garrulity for a time that seemed almost an eternity to his agonized wife and only ceased at last from positive exhaustion but when ida talked to him with gentle firmness reminding him that vernon was still the owner of wimperfield and that she was never likely to be its mistress he changed his tone and appeared to be in some measure recalled to his right senses what have i been talking rot again he muttered with a sheepish look yes of course the boy is still owner of the place the alterations must stand over get me some brandy and soda ida my mouth is parched ida rose as if to obey him and rang the bell but when the servant came she ordered soda water only brandy and soda brian said do you hear bring a bottle of brandy i can't get through the night without a little now and then ida gave the man a look which he understood he left the room in silence brian she said when he was gone you must not have any more brandy it is brandy which has done you harm which has filled your brain with these horrible delusions mr fosbrook told me so you affect to despise him but he is a sensible man who has had large experience large experience in an agricultural village physicking a handful of rustics cried brian scornfully 
I know that he is clever, and I believe him, answered Ida. My own common sense tells me that he is right. I see you the wreck and ruin of what you have been, and I know there is only one reason for this dreadful change. It is your fault, he said sullenly. I should be a different man if you had cared for me. I had nothing worth living for. Ida soothed him and argued with him with inexhaustible patience, full of pity for his fallen state. She was firm in her refusal to order brandy for him, in spite of his angry protest that he was being treated like a child, in spite of his assertion that the London physician had ordered him to take brandy. She stayed with him for hours, during which he alternated between rambling garrulity and sullen despondency, till at last, worn out with the endeavour to control or soothe him, she withdrew to her own room adjoining his, and left him in the hope that, if left to himself, he would go to bed and sleep. Rest of any kind for herself was impossible. Weighed down with anxiety about her husband's condition, and stricken with remorse at the thought that it was perhaps his ill-starred marriage which had in some wise tended to bring about this ruin of a life. And yet things had gone well with him, existence had been made very easy for him since his marriage, and only moral perversity would have so blighted a career which had lain open to all the possibilities of good fortune. The initial difficulty, poverty, which so many men have to overcome, had been conquered for Brian within the first year of his marriage. And now six years were gone, and he had done nothing except waste and ruin his mind and body. Ida left the door ajar between the two rooms, and lay down in her clothes, ready to go to her husband's assistance if he should need help of any kind. She had taken the key out of the door opening from his room into the corridor, so that he would have to pass through her own room in going out. She had done this from a vague fear that he might go roaming about the house in the dead of the night, scaring her stepmother or the boy by some mad violence. She made up her mind to telegraph for the London physician early next morning, and to obtain some skilled attendant to watch and protect her husband. She had heard of a man in such a condition throwing himself out of a window, or cutting his throat, and she felt that every moment was a moment of fear, until proper means had been taken to protect Brian from his own madness. She listened while he paced the adjoining room, muttering to himself. Once she looked in, and saw him sitting on the floor, hunting for some imaginary objects which he saw scattered around him. "'How did I come to drop such a lot of silver?' he muttered. "'What a devil of a nuisance not to be able to pick it up properly!' She watched him groping about the carpet, pursuing imaginary objects, with eager, sensitive fingers, and muttering to himself angrily when they evaded him. By and by he flung himself upon his bed, but not to sleep, only to turn restlessly from side to side, over and over again, with a weary monotony which was even more wearisome to the watcher than to himself. Two or three times he got up and hunted behind the bed curtains, evidently with the idea of some lurking foe, and then lay down again, apparently but half convinced that he was alone. Once he started up suddenly, just as he was dropping off to sleep, and complained of a flash of light which had almost blinded him. "'Lightning!' he muttered. 
I believe I am struck blind. Come here, Ida. She went to him and soothed him, and told him there had been no lightning. It was only his fancy. Everything is my fancy, he said. The world is built out of fancies. The universe is only an extension of the individual mind. And then he began to ramble on upon every metaphysical theory he had ever read about, from Plato and Aristotle to Leibniz and Kant, from Hegel to Bain, talking, 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 through the slow hours of that terrible night. At last, when the sun was high, he fell into what seemed a sound sleep, and then Ida, utterly worn with care and watching, changed her gown for a cashmere peignoir and lay down on her bed. She slept soundly for a blessed hour or more of respite and forgetfulness, then woke suddenly with an acute consciousness of trouble. Yet vaguely remembering the nature of that trouble, memory came back only too soon. She rose hurriedly and went to look at her patient. His room was empty. He had passed through her room and gone out into the corridor without awakening her. She rang her bell and was answered by Lady Palliser's own maid, Jane Dyson, who came in a leisurely way with the morning cups of tea. It was now seven o'clock. "'Is Mr. Wendover downstairs in the dining-room or library?' Ida asked, trying not to look too anxious. "'I have not seen him, ma'am. Inquire, please. I want to know where he is, and why he left his room so much earlier than usual.' She had a dismal feeling that all the household must know what was amiss, that the shame and degradation of the case could hardly be deepened. "'Yes, ma'am, I'll go and see. Do, please, while I take my bath,' said Ida. "'You can come back to me in ten minutes.' The cold bath refreshed her, and she was dressing hurriedly when Jane Dyson returned to announce that Mr. Wendover and Sir Vernon had gone out fishing at half-past six. The under-housemaid had seen them go, and had heard Mr. Wendover say that they would have a long day. "'Go and ask her if she heard where they were going,' said Ida, going on with her dressing, eager to be out of doors on her brother's track. That wild talk of Brian's last night, that horrible delusion about the boy's death, coupled with this early expedition, filled her with unspeakable fear. It was no new thing for Brian and the boy to go out fishing together. They had spent many a long day whipping distant trout streams in the summer that was gone. But this year Vernon had vainly endeavoured to tempt his old companion to join him in his wanderings with rod and line. Brian had refused all such invitations peevishly or sullenly, as if it were an offence to remind him how poor a creature he had become. And now, after a night of wakefulness and delirium, Brian, with his brain still wild and disordered, perhaps, had taken the boy out with him on some indefinite excursion, alone, the helpless child in the power of a maniac. Ida did not wait for the return of the maid, but ran downstairs as soon as she was dressed and questioned Rogers, the butler. Rogers, as an old and valuable servant, took his ease of a morning, and only appeared upon the scene when underlings had made all things comfortable and ready to his hand. He therefore knew nothing of the mode and manner of Mr. Wendover and the boy's departure. Robert, Sir Vernon's bodyguard, groom, and general outdoor retainer, was fetched from his breakfast. 
and he was able to inform Mrs. Wendover how Sir Vernon had gone out to the stables at twenty past six, with his fishing-basket slung over his shoulder, to ask for some artificial flies which Robert had been making for him, and to say that he should not want the pony or Robert all the morning, as he was going out with Mr. Wendover. He had not mentioned his destination, but Robert knew that the water-meadows on the other side of Black Man's Hanger were his favourite ground for such sport. He had been there with Robert many a day. His remotest point in this direction was five or six miles from home. The boy was able to walk twelve miles in a day without undue fatigue, resting a good deal, and taking his own time. But in a general way he rode his pony when he went out on any long excursion and dismounted from time to time as the fancy took him. "'I'm afraid he may overtire himself with Mr. Wendover,' said Ida, anxious to give a good reason for her anxiety. "'Get Cleopatra ready for me, and get a horse for yourself, and we'll ride after them. Mr. Wendover is an invalid, and ought not to have the trouble of a child upon his hands all day. If I can overtake them, I shall persuade them both to come back. If they don't—' "'They'll be likely to get caught,' said Robert, exploring the clouds with the sagacious eyes of a rustic observer schooled by long experience to read signs and tokens in the heavens. "'There'll be a storm, I'm afeard, before dinner-time.' Dinner-time, with Robert, meant the hour of the sun's meridian, which he took to be the universal and legitimate dinner-hour for all mankind, designed so to be from the creation. "'How soon can you have the horses ready?' "'In a quarter of an hour, ma'am.' Ida flew upstairs, meeting her stepmother on the way. Lady Palliser had gone to her son's room as soon as she left her own, her custom always, and on missing the boy had made instant inquiries as to his whereabouts, and had already taken fright. "'Oh, Ida, if that dreadful husband of yours should lure him into some lonely place and kill him! My boy, my beloved, my lovely boy!' "'Dear mother, be reasonable. "'Brian would not hurt a hair of his head. "'Brian loves him,' urged Ida, soothingly, "'yet with a torturing pain at her heart, "'remembering Brian's delirious raving last night. "'What will not a madman do? "'Who can tell what he will do?' "'cried Lady Palliser, wringing her hands. "'Trust in God, mother. "'No harm will come to our boy. "'No harm shall come to him.' "'except perhaps a wetting. "'Get warm clothes ready. "'I'm going to ride after him,' said Ida, "'hurrying off to her room. "'In less than ten minutes she had put on her habit "'and was in the stable-yard, "'and three minutes afterwards Fanny Palliser, "'roaming up and down and round about her son's room "'like a perturbed spirit, "'heard the clatter of hooves "'and saw her stepdaughter ride out of the yard "'attended by Robert, the best and kindness of grooms, "'and devoted to his young master.' Lady Palliser went downstairs, and again interrogated the housemaid who had witnessed Sir Vernon's departure. "'How had Mr. Wendover seemed?' she asked. "'Good-tempered and pleasant and quiet?' "'Very good-tempered and very pleasant,' the girl told her. "'But not quiet. He talked and laughed a great deal, and seemed full of fun, but in a great hurry.' The mother remembered how many a time her boy and Brian Wendover had been out together, and tried to put away fear. After all, Brian was a nice fellow. He had always made himself agreeable to her. It was only of late 
that he had become fitful and strange in his ways. She had seen such a case before in her own family, her own flesh and blood, her mother's only brother. That victim to his own vice had been elderly at the time she knew him, a chronic sufferer. She but too well remembered his tottering knees and restless, tremulous feet, those painful morning hours when he shook like an aspen leaf, those dreadful nights when he sat cowering over the fire, glancing askant over his shoulder every now and then, haunted by phantoms, hearing and replying to imaginary voices, striving with restless, shivering hands to rid himself of imaginary vermin. He had been mad enough at times, in all conscience, as mad as any lunatic in Bedlam, but he had never tried to injure anyone but himself. Once they found him with an open razor, possibly contemplating suicide, but he abandoned the idea meekly enough when surprised by his friends, and explained himself with one of those lies with which his tremulous tongue was ever so ready. Arguing with herself by the light of past experience, that, after all, this drink madness was a disease apart, seldom culminating in actual violence, Lady Palliser sat down before her silver urn, and made believe to breakfast, in solitary state, thinking as she poured out her tea, how very little all these grand things upon the table could help or comfort one in the hour of trouble. Nay, in such times of misfortune, the little sitting-room of her childhood, the round table and shabby old chairs, the kettle on the hob and the cat upon the hearth, had seemed to possess an element of sympathy and comfort, entirely wanting in this spacious formal dining-room, with its perpetual repetition of straight lines and its chilling distances. Ida rode through the park, and across the common, and round the base of Blackman's Hangar, as fast as her clever mare could carry her, with any degree of comfort to either. The clever mare was somewhat skittish from want of work, and inclined to show her cleverness by shying at every stray rabbit, or crocodile-shaped excrescence in the way of fallen timber, lying within her range of vision, but Ida was too anxious to be disconcerted by any such small surprises, and rode on without drawing rein to the banks of the trout stream which wound its silvery way through the valley on the other side of Blackman's Hangar. If they could have crossed the hill, the distance would have been lessened by at least two-thirds. But the steep was much too sheer for any horse to mount, and Ida had to circumnavigate the wooded promontory, which narrowed and dwindled to a fuzzy ridge at the edge of the river. Once in the valley her way was easy, with only here and there a low hedge for the mare to jump, just enough to put her in good spirits but after riding for about seven miles along the bank of the stream, Ida pulled up in despair, to ask Robert where next she must look for his master. It was evident this was the wrong scent. "'They'd hardly have come further, nor this within the time,' Robert admitted, with a rueful look at the lather on Cleopatra's dark brown neck and shoulder. "'And this is further nor ever I come with Sir Vernon. We must try somewheres else, ma'am.' and so they turned, and at Robert's direction Ida rode off, this time at a walking pace, for another of Vernon's happy hunting-grounds. A sudden ray of hope occurred to her as they returned by the base of Blackman's Hangar. 
what if vernon should have taken brian to cheap jack's cottage to have introduced him to that gifted misanthrope who among his other accomplishments had a talent for repairing fishing tackle moved by this hope ida dismounted and gave cleopatra's bridle to robert who was on his feet almost as soon as his mistress let the mare rest for a little while robert she said i am going up to the top of the hill to see the peddler sir vernon may have been with him this morning not unlikely ma'am he be a rare favourite with sir vernon i hope he's a respectable person oh i think the chap's honest enough answered the groom with a patronising air but he's a queer customer a regular peter the wild boy he is ida who had never heard of this gentleman was not particularly enlightened by the comparison she went lightly and quickly up the steep ascent and along a furzy ridge which rose imperceptibly skywards until she came to the fir plantation which sheltered the gamekeeper's cottage the lattice stood wide open and a man was leaning with folded arms on the sill as she came in sight but in a flash the man had gone and the lattice was closed she ran on nothing deterred by this discourtesy and knocked at the door with the handle of her whip is my brother sir vernon pollister here she asked no a gruff voice answered from within please open the door i want to ask your advice the boy has wandered off on a fishing expedition have you seen anything of him this morning no are you sure do you think i should tell you a lie growled the sulky voice from within what a surly brute thought ida how can vernon like to make a companion of such a man she lingered only half convinced and nervously repeated her story how vernon had gone out with mr wendover that morning before seven and how she had been looking for them and was afraid they would be caught in the storm which was evidently coming you'd better go home before you're half drowned yourself growled the surly voice i'll look for the boy and send him home to you if he's above ground will you really look for him faltered ida in a rapture of gratitude you know his ways and he is so fond of you pray find him and bring him home you shall be liberally rewarded we shall be deeply grateful she added hastily fearing she had offended by this suggestion of sordid recompense i'll do my best grumbled the woman-hater when you've cleared off i shan't stir till you're gone i am going this instant my horse is at the bottom of the hangar god bless you for your goodness to my brother god bless you replied the voice in a deeper and less strident tone big drops were falling slowly and far apart from the lowering sky as ida went down the hill a steep and even dangerous descent for feet less accustomed to that kind of ground you'd better ride home as fast as you can ma'am said robert as he mounted cleopatra's light burden the mare's had a good blow and you can canter her all the way back i don't care about the storm for myself sir vernon must be out in it a low muttering peal of thunder rolled slowly along the valley as she settled herself into her saddle sir vernon won't hurt ma'am besides who knows if he ain't at home by this time there was comfort in this suggestion but after a smart ride home under a drenching shower diversified by thunder and lightning ida found lady palliser waiting for her in the portico there had been no tidings of the boy two of the gardeners had been dispatched in quest of him 
each provided with a mackintosh and an umbrella, and now the mother, no longer apprehensive of homicidal mania on the part of Brian, was tortured by her fear of the fury of the elements, the pitiless rain which might give her boy rheumatic fever, lightnings which might strike him with blindness or death, rivers which might heave themselves above their banks to drown him, trees which might wrench themselves up from their roots on purpose to tumble on him. Lady Palliser always took the catastrophic view of nature when she thought of her boy. Luncheon was out of the question for either Ida or her stepmother. They went into the dining-room when the gong sounded, and each was affectionately anxious that the other should take some refreshment, but they could do nothing except watch the storm, the fine old trees bending to the tempest, the darkly lurid sky brooding over the earth. Thick sheets of rain, driven across the foreground, and almost shutting out the distant woods and hills. The two women stood silently watching that unfriendly sky, and listened for every footstep in the hall, in the fond hope of the boy's return. And when they tried to comfort each other, with the idea that he was under cover somewhere, at some village inn, eating a homely meal of bread and cheese, happy and cheery as a bird, perhaps, while they were so miserable about him. "'I have an idea that Cheap Jack will find them,' said Ida, by and by. "'Vernon says he is such a clever fellow, and a rover like that would know every inch of the country.' The day wore on. The storm rolled away towards other hills and woods, and a rent in the dun-coloured clouds showed the bright blue above them. Soon all the heaven was clear, and the wet grass was shining in the afternoon sunlight. One of the messengers now returned, with the useless Mackintosh. He had been able to hear nothing of Sir Vernon and his companion. He had been at Wimperfield Village, and through two other villages, and had taken a circuitous way back by another meadow stream, where there might be a hope of trout, but he had seen no trace of the missing boy. The field labourers he had met had been able to give him no information. There was nothing to be done but to wait, and wait, and wait. Robert had mounted a fresh horse and had gone off to scour the country, wondering not a little that there should be such a fuss about a day's fishing. Five o'clock came, and afternoon tea, usually the pleasantest hour of the day, for in this summer-time the five o'clock tea-table was prepared in the rose-garden in front of the drawing-room, under a Japanese umbrella, and in the shade of a screen of magnolia and Portugal laurel, mock-orange and gilder rose that had been growing for half a century. Today, Lady Palliser and her stepdaughter took their tea in silent dejection. They had grown weary of comforting each other, weary of all hopeful speculations. It was on the stroke of six. The boy and his companion had been away nearly twelve hours. They could do nothing but wait. Suddenly they heard voices. Two or three voices talking excitedly and all together, and then a shrill, sweet cry in a voice they both knew so well. "'He is alive!' cried Fanny Palliser, starting up and rushing towards the house. She had scarcely gone half a dozen steps when Rogers came out, crimson, puffing with excitement, leading Vernon by the arm. "'Here he is, my lady, safe and sound,' said Rogers. But he has had a rare drenching. The sooner we put him to bed, the better. 
"'Yes, yes, he must go to bed this instant. "'Oh, thank God, my darling, my darling. "'Oh, you naughty boy, how could you give me such a fright? "'You have almost broken your poor mother's heart, and Ida's too.' "'Dear mother, dear Ida, I am so sorry, but I didn't go alone. "'I went with Brian. "'That wasn't naughty, was it?' the boy asked innocently. "'Naughty to stay away so long, to go so far. "'Where have you been?' "'Birds nesting in the woods. "'And I have got a honey buzzard's nest. Two lovely eggs, worth ten shillings apiece. "'The nest is built on the top of a crow's nest, don't you know? First we went fishing, but there were no fish. "'And then I asked Brian to let me do some bird's nesting, "'and we went into the woods. "'Oh, a long, long way, and I got very tired, "'and we had no lunch. "'Brian had something in a bottle. "'He bought it at an inn on the road. "'I think it was brandy. "'He swore because it was so bad, "'but he didn't give me any. "'And when the storm came on, "'we were on Headborough Hanger, "'and Brian and I lost each other, "'and I suppose he came straight home.' "'No, Brian has not come home.' "'Oh, dear,' said the boy. "'I hope he's not looking for me all this time.' "'Come, darling, you must go to bed. "'We must get off these wet clothes,' said Ida. "'And Vernon's mother and sister carried him off to his room, "'where a fire was lighted and blankets heated "'and hot-water bottles brought for the comfort of the young wanderer. "'The boy prattled on unweariedly all the time he was being undressed, "'telling his day's adventures.' how Brian had been frightened because he thought there were some men following them who wanted to take Brian to prison. He did not see the men, but Brian saw them hiding behind trees and watching and following them secretly. I was very tired, said the boy with a piteous look, and my feet ached, for Brian would go so fast, and I wanted to come home badly, but Brian said the men were after us and we must double upon them, and we went round and round and round till we lost ourselves and then brian told me to rest on the trunk of a tree while he went a little way further to see if the men were really gone and i sat and waited till i got very cold but he did not come back and then i went to look for him and i couldn't find him and then i began to cry i was not frightened mother but i was so tired my poor darling how could brian be so cruel sobbed the mother, hugging her boy, while Ida was preparing warm negus and chicken sandwiches for his refreshment. "'He wasn't cruel,' explained Vernon. "'He was frightened about those men, ever so much more afraid than I was. But I never saw any men, Ida. How was it Brian could see them, and I couldn't?' "'How did you find your way home at last, dearest?' asked Ida. "'I didn't find it. I should be in the woods still if it was not for Jack. Jack found me, and carried me across the hangar on his back, and took me up to his cottage, and took off my clothes and dried them, and gave me some brandy in a teaspoon, and then wrapped me in a bearskin, and carried me all the way here. How good of him, said Ida, and how I should like to thank him for his kindness. He doesn't want to be thanked. He hates girls, said Vernon with perfect frankness. He just gave me into Roger's arms and walked off. But I shall go and thank him tomorrow morning, and I shall take him my onyx breastpin, the one you gave me last Christmas, mother. You don't mind, do you? No, dear, you may give him anything you like. But I think you would rather have a sovereign or a nice warm overcoat for the winter 
what would be the good of an onyx pin to him what would be the good of it why he would keep it for my sake of course answered verney with a grand air vernon had no appetite for the chicken sandwiches or inclination for madeira negus he took a few sips of the latter to please his womankind but he could eat nothing he had fasted all day and now in his overexcited state he had no power to eat lady palliser took fright at this and sent off for the family doctor that fatherly counsellor in whose wisdom she had such confidence the boy was evidently feverish his eyes were too bright his cheeks flushed he was restless and unable to sleep off his fatigue in that placid slumber of childhood which brings healing with its rhythmical ebb and flow the dinner gong sounded and brian was still missing but at half-past eight he came in and walked straight to the drawing-room where ida was sitting alone neither she nor her stepmother had sat down to dinner lady palliser was in her boy's room waiting for the doctor oh brian thank god you are safe said his wife as he came slowly into the room and sank into a chair what a scare you have given us all did you think i was drowned or that i had cut my throat he asked sneeringly i don't think either event would have mattered much to anyone in this house his manner was entirely different from what it had been last night his words were cool and deliberate his expression moody but in no wise irrational you have no right to say that but people who say such things seldom mean what they say replied ida quietly had you not better go to your room at once and change your clothes or take a warm bath it is a kind of suicide to wander about all day in wet clothes as you have done who told you i was wandering about all day vernon told us vernon he started as if suddenly remembering the boy's existence and then in an agitated manner asked did he come home is he all right he came home thank god at least he was brought home i doubt if he could have found his way back alone i am afraid he is going to be ill nonsense a little cold perhaps nothing more it was a diabolical day i never saw such rain a regular tropical downpour but what is a shower of rain for a healthy boy not much perhaps if he is able to change his clothes directly afterwards but to be wandering about for hours in wet clothes without food that is enough to kill a stronger boy than my brother it won't kill him you may depend said brian with a cynical laugh i should profit too much by his death and i am not one of fortune's favourites he's tough enough brian you have no more heart than a stone perhaps not all the heart i had i gave to you and you made a football of it but why should a heart have been there in the way of a fair woman's foot as the poet asks had you better not go to your room and take off your wet clothes repeated ida she had no inclination to argue or remonstrate with a man whose mind was so evidently askew who had long ago passed the boundary line of principle and noble thought and had become a mere creature of impulse blown this way or that way by every gust of passion so weak a sinner that her scornful anger was tempered by pity if you are anxious i should escape a severe cold perhaps you will be liberal enough to allow me a little brandy said brian 
Ida was doubtful how to reply. She had been told to withhold all stimulants, and yet this was an exceptional case. Happily, at this very moment, the door was opened, and Mr. Fosbrook, the family doctor, was announced. She ran to meet him. "'Vernon has had a severe wetting, and we are afraid he is going to be ill,' she said. "'I'll take you upstairs at once. Mamma is with him.' As soon as they were outside in the hall, she had told him about Brian's request, and asked his advice. "'I think I would give him a small tumbler of grog after his wetting. To refuse would seem too severe. But take care he hasn't the control of the bottle.' She ran back to her husband told him she would take some brandy and water to his room for him by the time he had changed his clothes, and then she went with Mr. Fosbrook into Vernon's room, that bright, airy room overlooking the rose garden, which maternal and sisterly love had decorated with all possible prettinesses and furnished with every appliance of comfort. Mr. Fosbrook examined the boy carefully, and seemed hardly to like the aspects of the case, though he maintained the customary professional cheeriness. The boy was feverish, very feverish, he admitted. Pulse a good deal too rapid, temperature high. One could never tell how these cases were going to turn. The boy had suffered unusual fatigue and deprivation, and for a child so reared the strain was severe. But in all probability a gentle febrifuge, which would throw him into a perspiration, and a good night's rest, would be all that was needed, and he would be as well as ever to-morrow morning. "'These small things get out of order so easily,' said Mr. Fosbrook, smiling down at the flushed cheek on the pillow. "'They are like those foolish little Geneva watches ladies are so fond of wearing. My old turnip never goes wrong. You must make haste and grow big, Vernon, and then Mamma will not be so easily frightened about you.' Vernon smiled faintly without opening his eyes. "'You see, you have contrived between you to make him an exotic,' said the doctor. "'And you mustn't be surprised if it gives you a little trouble now and then. Orchids are beautiful flowers, but they are difficult to rear.' "'Oh, Mr. Fosbrook,' said Lady Palliser, "'how can you say so? Vernon is so hardy, riding his pony in all weathers.' "'Yes, but always provided with a mackintosh, always told to hurry home at the first drop of rain. Well, I dare say he will be ready for his pony to-morrow, if he takes my draught.' Tomorrow came, but Vernon was not in a condition to ride his pony. The fever and prostration were worse than they had been overnight, and while Brian seemed to have taken no harm from his exposure to the storm, the boy had evidently suffered a shock to the system, from which he would be slow to recover. Tortured with anxiety about this idolized brother, Ida did not forget her duty to her husband. She did what she had resolved to do during the long watches of that agonizing night, in which she had seen Brian the victim of his own weak self-indulgence, to all intents and purposes a madman, yet unworthy of the compassion which lunacy inspires, since this madness was self-induced. She telegraphed to the London physician whose advice her husband affected to value, and at five o'clock in the afternoon she had the satisfaction of seeing a soberly clad, grey-haired gentleman alight from a Petersfield fly in front of the portico. This was Dr. Mallison, of Harley Street, a great authority in all nervous disorders, as thorough and as real a man as Dr. Rylance was artificial and shallow. 
yet a man whom some of Dr. Rylance's most profitable patients denounced as a brute. Dr. Mallison's plain and straightforward manner invited confidence, and Ida confided her fears and anxieties to him without scruple, telling him faithfully all that she had observed in her husband's conduct before and after that one dreadful night, which she described shudderingly. Yes, I remember his case. This seems to have been rather a sharp attack. He had one early in the spring, just before he came to me. An attack like this one? An attack of delirium tremens, not quite so bad as this last, from his own account, but then one can never quite trust a patient's account. And you say he is better now? Yes, he has been in his room all to-day, writing or reading. He seems dull and low-spirited, that is all. No delusions to-day? Not that I have discovered, but I have only seen him now and then. My little brother is ill, and I have been in his room most of the time. Poor soul, that is a bad job, said Dr. Mallison kindly. Well, you must have an attendant for your husband. Can you get anybody here, do you think, or shall I send you a man from town? I shall be very grateful if you will send someone. It would be difficult to get anyone here. I dare say it would. I'll get a person dispatched to you by the mail train, if I am back in time. Your husband must not be left to himself. This is a vital point. Still so long as he is reasonable, and shows no signs of violence, it will not do to let him suppose that he is watched. That would aggravate matters. You must be diplomatic. Let the man pass as an extra servant, not a professional nurse. All invalids detest professional nurses. Is this dreadful malady likely to pass away? asked Ida, falteringly. It was unspeakably painful to her to discuss her husband's failing, and yet she wanted to learn all that could be known about it. Undoubtedly. Remove the cause and the effect will cease. But you have to do more than that. You have to restore the constitution to its normal state, to renew the tissues which intemperance has destroyed. In a word, to eliminate the poison, and then the craving for drink will cease, and your husband may begin life again, like Naaman after his seventh dip in the Jordan. At Mr. Wendover's age, such a habit ought not to be fatal. There is ample time for reform, but I give you fair warning that it is not an easy disease to cure. I'm not talking of the delirium tremens, which is a symptom, rather than a disease, but of alcoholic poisoning. The craving for alcohol once established is an ugly weed to root out. If patience and care can cure him, he shall be cured, said Ida, with a steadfast look, which gave new nobility to her beautiful face in the observant eyes of the physician, a man keen to appreciate every gradation of the physical and the mental, and to tell to the nicest shade where sense left off and soul began. Here was a woman, assuredly, in whom soul predominated over sense. "'I believe that, madam,' he said kindly. "'And you shall have my best assistance depend upon it.' "'Why should a young man bring upon himself such an affliction as this?' Ida asked wonderingly. "'Ours is counted as a sober era.' "'Why, indeed. After dinner boozing and three-bottle men, are a tradition of the dark ages, and yet there are 
dozens of young men in london gifted young men some of them who are doing this thing every year half the untimely deaths you hear of might be traced home to the brandy bottle if a man had only the curiosity to look into first causes one man dies of congestion of the lungs yes but he had burnt up his lungs first with perpetual alcohol another is victim to liver why madame a temperate man may work thirty years under an indian sun and hardly know that he has a liver another is said to have died of too much brain-work yes work done by a brain steeped in alcohol not a brain but a preparation in spirits they all do the same thing pegging 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 from breakfast to bedtime and most of them would deny that they are drunkards do you think that if my husband drank it was because he was not happy because he had something on his mind much more likely that it was because he had nothing on his mind my dear madam these briefless barristers in the temple men with private means not obliged to hunt for work with a little fancy for literature and a little taste for the drama these idle youths whose only idea of social intercourse is to be gossiping and drinking in one another's rooms all day long living an undomestic life in chambers without the public interests or athletic sports of a university these are the chosen victims of alcohol of course i don't pretend for a moment that they all drink but where the tendency to drink exists this is the kind of life to foster it my husband was not obliged to live in chambers he had a home here yea but young men unless they are sportsmen hate the country and then once in the london vortex a man can't easily escape and now i suppose i had better go and see the patient does he know i have been sent for no then perhaps we shall have a scene he may be angry i must risk that said ida firmly he refused to be treated by our family doctor and i felt that things could not go on any longer as they were going on she led the way to brian's room he was lounging by the open window smoking his books and papers were scattered about the tables in reckless disorder dr mallison has come to see you brian said ida quietly as the physician followed her into the room you sent for him then exclaimed brian starting up angrily there was no alternative you refused to be attended by mr fosbrook fosbrook a village apothecary the parish doctor who would have poisoned me yes i should think so how dare you send for any one how dare you treat me like a child i dare do anything which i believe to be for your good ida answered unflinchingly he quailed before her and changed his tone in a moment well if it gratifies you to spend your money upon physicians how do you do dr mallison of course i am very glad to see you as a friend but i want no doctoring i am afraid you do said the physician you have not done what i told you when i saw you in london what was that to give up all stimulants oh that was impossible it's just like asking a man to shut his mouth and breathe only through his nostrils when he has lived all his life with his mouth open no man can change his habits all at once at the fiat of a physician but i have been very moderate ever since i saw you and yet 
you have had another attack. Who told you that? asked Brian, with an angry glance at his wife. Your own appearance, tells me. Yes, and your pulse. You have been indulging in the old habits, nipping all day long, and you have been sleeping badly. Sleeping badly, muttered Brian moodily. I wish to heaven I could sleep anyhow. I have forgotten the sensation of being asleep. I don't know what it means. Just as I fancy myself dropping off, there comes a flash of light in my eyes, and I am broad awake again. The other night I thought it lighted perpetually. But my wife said there was no lightning. A case of shattered nerves and all your own doing, said Dr. Mallison. You must leave off the brandy. Brandy has left me off, retorted Brian. My wife and her stepmother have gone in for strict economy. I am not allowed a spoonful of cognac, although I tell them it is the only thing that staves off racking neuralgic pains. You must endure neuralgia rather than go on poisoning yourself with brandy. For you, alcohol is rank poison. You are suffering now from the cumulative effect of all you have taken within the last twelve months. There are men who can drink with impunity, go on drinking hard through a long life, but you are not one of those. Drink for you means death. A man can die but once, grumbled Brian, and an early death is better than an aimless life. For shame, said the physician. If I had such a wife as you have, the aim of my life would be to make myself worthy of her and to win distinction for her sake. Ah, oh, there was a time when I thought the same, answered Brian, but that's over and done with. Ida left the doctor and his patient together, and walked up and down the corridor outside her husband's room, waiting to hear Dr. Mallison's final directions. He remained closeted with Brian for about a quarter of an hour. I have said all I could, and I have written a prescription which may do some good, he told Ida. This is a case for moral persuasion rather than medical treatment. If you can exercise a good influence over your husband and keep all stimulants away from him, he will recover. But his constitution has been undermined by bad habits, an indolent, unhealthy life, a life spent in hot rooms by artificial light. Get him out of doors as much as you can without exposing him to bad weather or undue fatigue. He is very weak, and altogether out of gear, and you mustn't expect much improvement until he recovers tone and appetite. But if you can ward off any return of the delirium, that will be something gained. Indeed it will. The delirium was too terrible. Well, keep all drink away from him. Even if he seems to suffer for want of it? Yes, the old-fashioned idea was that stopping a man's drink suddenly would bring on an attack of delirium tremens, but we know better than that now. We know that the delirium is only a consequence of alcohol poisoning, and inevitable where that goes on. Ida went back to the drawing-room with the doctor. The tea-table was ready, and there were decanters and sandwiches on another table. Dr. Mallison took a cup of tea and a sandwich, while he gave Ida minute directions as to the treatment of the patient. And then he accepted the handsome check which had been written for him, with Mr. Fosbroke's advice as to amount, and took his departure,
promising to send a skilled attendant within the next twelve hours. Ida felt happier after she had seen Dr. Mallison. There was very little that could be done for her husband. He had sown his wild oats, and that light scattering of seeds of folly had been pleasant enough, no doubt, in the time of sowing, and this was the unanticipated result, a bitter harvest of care and pain which had to be endured somehow. And now came for that household at Wimperfield a period of agonizing trouble and fear. The boy's illness developed into an acute attack of rheumatic fever, and for three dreadful days and nights his life trembled in the balance. Not once did Ida enter her husband's room during that awful period of fear. She could not steel herself to look upon the man whose sin, or whose folly, had brought this evil on her beloved one. My murdered boy, she kept repeating to herself. Even on her knees, when she tried to pray, humbly and meekly appealing to the fountain of mercy and grace, even then, while she knelt with bowed head and folded hands, those awful words flashed into her mind. Her murdered boy. If he were to die, who could doubt that his death would lie at Brian's door? Who could put away the dark suspicion that Brian had wantonly and with murderous intent exposed the delicate child to bad weather and long hours of fasting and fatigue? End of part two of chapter twenty five.